Okay, we're recording. Dave, quit talking about that person. All right. Now, Lord willing, you've had a chance to look at and do the study guide. I actually had a really fun experience at, at dinner. I, I've been trying to bring my dinner and sandwiches or whatever and totally spaced it preparing this morning. And um, so I ran out and grabbed a sandwich. And at the uh, little restaurant I was at, I walked by, and there's somebody who looked familiar, and I looked at her, and yep, I know her. And I looked at her table, and she had my study guide spread out and was furiously working away at the study guide. It's like, good. And there's at least one person doing that. I don't know how many others, but there's one. So I'm hoping that there was at least one in here. Uh, hopefully others. If you are having problems with any aspect of the study guide, um, the one that usually causes problems for people is looking words up, knowing what resources to use. And I will, I will give you a couple of hints because some of that's going to come out tonight uh, as we look at some of the words. Number one is I do not put words on that list for no reason. So those of you who have been with me before, what, what reasons do I have for putting words on that list? Okay. So there's added meaning sometimes if you just do a little bit extra word study. Um, and, and the reason that usually doesn't come across in the English translation is not because the translators are no good. Most of the time translators were pretty good. It's because to do that would thicken the Bible a great deal. If you've ever read the Amplified Version, anybody seen that? Okay, it's put out by um, the Foundation Press, Lockman Foundation, same people that do New American Standard. And instead of just giving you a word, sometimes they'll give you a whole paragraph of synonyms, this and this and this and this and this, to just expand on the meaning. So the Bible's like this thick, and it takes forever to read through it, and people don't like that. So most translations are going to be a lot simpler than that. What else, what other reasons might I have for giving you words? Okay. Kind of goes along with the other one, but sometimes it's not so much that there's added meaning as do we really understand what this meant then or there. Okay. Useless laquendi, by the way, is the Latin phrase for that. Everybody say it. You don't need to know what it means. Just useless laquendi. Come on, it's fun. Useless. No, I did not say useless. Useless. U-S-U-S. Useless loquendi. It means the use in that place, which also could refer to time. So how did they mean it? When Paul used the word uh, paracletes, what was he meaning? What was he thinking? Not just what do we think of it. All right. What else? There's two other reasons. And this should help you when you're looking things up. Cause okay. Sometimes it's for the very simple reason that this is an extremely important word or concept in our faith. So, for example, the word faith. And you will find me frequently putting that word in study guides. Um, there's another one that we'll hit tonight that's like that. Um, love. I mean, I think we all can get. Love is a pretty huge word in the Christian faith, right? Um, forgiveness. It's an extremely important word. 
Um, so there's a number of words like that. In fact, I, I just mentioned paraclete, paracletes, the comforter, the, the helper, the counselor. Um, and then the verb form, which almost always applies to us. In fact, I'm, I'm thinking, as I said that twice, I thought, I can only think of one passage where the verb form applied um, either applied exclusively, at least, to God. The rest of the time, it's like, no, that's about us and what we're supposed to be doing. So it's an extremely important word. There's going to be times when, when I'm going to give you those over and over and over, and you're going to look it up, and you're going to say, this is ridiculous. I looked it up last week. Okay? That's right. You did. And what I want is for you to get to the point where when you open the English translation and you see a word like love, the first thing that comes to your mind is, what love is this? Which one? And then if you look it up and you find that it is indeed agape, you don't need to look it up any further. You know exactly what that means because you've done that study. Okay? Um, Athesis is the word that is most often given for or used for um, forgiveness. And it's actually very similar in concept to love. And in the way it's different from what we typically think of it. You think of love, you think of it as an emotion, right? Isn't that how most people think of it? So it's about how we feel. But the problem is agape's got zero to do with how you feel. That's one of the, the keys to understanding that word. Aphesis, forgiveness. Too many people think that means, okay, if I'm going to forgive this person, I've got to feel really good about them. Um, I've got to have these warm fuzzies. I'm just not ready for that. And so I've had many people who really want to be faithful say, I just can't forgive them yet. Well, there's a problem. Anybody know what the problem with that is? Yeah. And in fact, you're commanded and you're told if you don't, there's a very serious consequence. Jesus himself said, if you forgive others, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not, your Heavenly Father will not forgive others. And there is absolutely nothing in that context that indicates it is limited to that time. So uh, that's pretty heavy. The cool thing is, when you understand what the word means, it's got zero to do with your feelings. And it's also, by the way, got zero to do with holding people accountable in a manner that protects other people. Okay? So if somebody you know, shoots me with a gun, I can forgive that person. I can still want that person uh, put somewhere um, not to punish them, not to harm them, but where they're not going to shoot someone else if there's evidence that that's likely to happen. And that's not the least bit inconsistent with the word. How do we know that? We study the word. Okay? So the more we understand words like that, the more as we study the Bible, we see those words, we see major concepts we don't have to stop and look them up again. We, we've got a richness that we can already bring to it as long as we know that's the word being used. And that's a fairly easy thing to confirm. Right? Okay. So there's other things that might also be an issue in terms of um, doing the actual study. But I will say what I said the first night. If you don't do the actual study ahead of time, um, I won't tell you, say you're not going to get anything out of this class, but you're, you're not going to get at least half of what you could, and you're certainly not going to get what I'm hoping and planning for you to get as a part of this class. So don't cheat yourself that way, okay? Now, given that, assuming you've actually read the passage and done some work, and forgive me for some of you, that's probably three or four weeks ago because of that 
problem we had with schedule. Do you have any particular questions over the study guide, over the words used, over words you ran into that I didn't put down? Because there's others that are good. I just can't put a million of them down because you guys would rebel. Um, anything else about that passage, or for that matter, any passage that came before? Or on this one, what's the number? I think it's 11. Nope, it's 12. The last question on every study guide will be, what questions would you add to this study guide? So if you came up with one that you think is pretty important, then I'm more than happy to add that to our discussion. Did anybody have any questions tonight? Okay, and what is the question about it? So it's just the whole question, not anything particular about it. Okay? Um, okay? We will we'll hold that till towards the end because I want to get the whole discussion out and reading it. Any others? through that, I'll stop and come back and reference that, okay? Any others? Were there any words that you struggled with or couldn't find? Sometimes if you, if you look it up and the only thing you can find is it seems to be exactly what it says, that might be a sign that there's something more that I was fishing for. And because, um, again, I guarantee you I'm not putting it in there just to get a one-word synonym. chapters, well, two and a half chapters, we've got an introduction, and we've established several things. Uh, one of the big ones that keeps coming out is this thing that Paul's doing as he addresses um, the, the issue of faith and justification by faith in the gospel, um, the law, how do all of these things come together, is Paul is, if you can, you can almost visually see him you know, looping in the Gentiles, then looping in the Jews, and then looping in the Gentiles again. And he's going to keep doing that throughout the letter. So there's things that he says that explicitly are addressing Gentiles, things that he says that explicitly address the Jews. And we talked about that last week as he kind of came in and out of the first part of chapter 3. So now he's getting to what has been labeled by New American Standard as a more... Uh, specific discussion of what we call justification by faith. Justification by faith, as you're reading through this, and I, I don't argue with that little heading, um, it, it calls your attention to two things, very obviously. What, what would those be? Not a trick question. Well, yeah. You're going even beyond where I was. I was trying to stay real simple. First of all, justification. 
Well, we're going to get into it. I'm just saying, as we go through this, in your head, be thinking, what does that refer to? And I'll tell you right now, that's, that is the word that I was saying is one of those concept words that we need to understand so that as we go throughout Scripture and we hear it from Jesus' own uh, lips, we hear it from the, the various apostles, justification is a huge, huge concept or teaching in the Christian faith. But it's not just justification. It's justification by faith. And if you're going to put a theme of the entire letter to the Romans, that phrase probably is the theme. Justification by faith. Paul is famous for this. Um, it's not new here to this letter, and it's not new to Paul. This is, this is what Jesus taught. This is, in fact, what uh, God told, them to pro- told uh, the prophets to proclaim to Israel and even to the Gentiles, Nineveh, with Jonah, um, that if there's going to be justification, it's not going to be through their works, it's going to be through faith. But if you're going to understand what he means, then you have to understand that word faith. And it is a big word. It's a lot bigger than what most people in the church in America think it is. So we're going to need to be careful as we go through that. Now, he starts off in Romans 3.21, says, Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. There is a word. How many of you use that word today? Yeah. As a propitiation in His blood through faith. I'm going to stop there simply because I found a period. Um, remember, by the way, uh, Paul did not necessarily write in run-on sentences. There were no uh, periods. There, there was no um, punctuation whatsoever in the Greek language at this time. So where periods, commas, and so forth are placed is a matter of translation. And most translators sort of put that on Paul because his work, his writing sort of, it's just got that, academic tone to it sometimes that lends itself to this. So, apart from the law, he's been talking about the law, and we talked about the law before. What then are we meaning when we talk about law? Okay? What does the word law mean in this context? Well, our Ten Commandments is part of it. The Mosaic Law. Ten Commandments were like the Big Ten. They were, they were specific things that were teased out in a specific place. However, there were hundreds of commandments. Um, it is given and re-given and then discussed and then lived out, and you see how they applied it throughout the first five books of Moses. When Paul uses the word the law, when Jesus, for that matter, uses the word the law, most of the time it has a double meaning. And everybody would have understood it. All the Jews at that time would have understood it. The first meaning was the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch. It was referred to as the law. Now, not all of it is about the law. Genesis doesn't have the Mosaic law in it. Okay? But it is about how God brought 
his people from creation to making them a nation under him, a theocracy, with the law. So the first five books would be considered the law. The second meaning, and it, and it would not be seen as a, a contradiction, it would have been like, um, what do they call the, the Russian dolls, nesting dolls. You guys know what, you know, little one inside a big one. Um, the second meaning would be those commands themselves. And so in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus, you see some of it in Exodus, um, you have specific commands given by God to Moses to give to the nation of Israel. This was civil code. Okay? This wasn't just uh, something that had to do with their faith. This was the civil code for this new nation that was being formed. They didn't have parking laws. They had laws about things that were relevant to them. Some of them, universal. Can you think of a universal law that was part of the Mosaic Law? You understand what I mean by universal? Okay, it means it applies at all times to all people. Not just the nation of Israel back in its formation. Thank you. All right. The law against idolatry. Would you all agree this is intended to be universal? It wasn't like, okay, now the, the nation of Israel no longer exists. Go ahead and commit idolatry all you want. No big deal. Of course not. So can you, can you think of others now? Don't kill. Actually, don't murder is what it says. Yeah. A little bit different and a lot harder than to apply sometimes. What others? Don't commit adultery. Don't lie, don't steal, don't covet. And it is amazing, see, what, we've, what we're doing is we're going to the Mosaic Law, but not just the Mosaic Law. We're going to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are seen by almost everybody as universal, but they're not necessarily the only ones. On the other hand, we talked about this briefly last, year, last week, there are laws that we all know are not universal. For example, how many of you have offered a, an animal sacrifice this year? No. Okay, what? Yes. That would not be a sacrifice. It may or may not be expedient. It, it will not be a sacrifice. So, obviously, that was extremely limited in its application. In fact, the nation of Israel itself was forbidden to offer sacrifices anywhere except the altar that God set up. You did not just go somewhere and offer a sacrifice to God. You offered it where he said, how he said, and that was part of the sacrifice. It was part of the admission. He's God. He gets to tell us how to do that. You see? So, we don't do that. And there's a reason we don't do it, and that is because that part clearly was just for Israel. There are some laws that people argue about whether or not they're just from Israel today or for Israel today. I personally have never seen one I thought was all that arguable. Okay? But obviously I'm not the only one around. So anybody here know someone who insists you must worship on uh, Friday night through Saturday afternoon. Mostly Friday night. 
You worship on Friday night through Saturday afternoon. Yes, it's called the Sabbath. But you worship then. Know somebody like that? No. Definitely not Catholics. Uh, but it is Seventh-day Adventists. Now, some of the Seventh-day Adventists, it is a formal denomination with formal teaching. Um, the formal teaching does not say you're going to hell if you don't do that. Now, some of them believe that. Somebody told me just this last weekend they had been confronted by somebody and you're going to hell because you worship on Sunday morning. You know, where they got that, I don't know, because obviously I don't believe that. On the other hand, there's no question that the law set up certain ceremonies and definitely declared the Sabbath itself was sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night. There's no such thing as the Sabbath on Sunday. Never has been, never will be. It's just not the Sabbath. Okay? So we don't have a problem with that because the Bible itself, the New Testament itself, tells us we don't, we're not bound by that. So... I'm not going to go much further into that, but all of this is something to keep in mind as you're reading through the next five, six chapters because Paul's talking to a group of people who come from this tradition very solidly and are in the church with a group of people who did not. So they, they had the law, they didn't have the law, and now they're one. And how in the world is that working? Well, sometimes not real well. So Paul has to kind of bring them all in. Um, there is another part of this that is important. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Anybody heard that before? Okay, we read like ten verses that said exactly the same thing in the beginning of the chapter. But there's a thing called the Roman Road. Are you guys familiar with the Roman Road? Okay, a few of you have used it. The Roman Road is called that because it's from the book of Romans. And it is a pathway that describes um, how to understand the gospel. It is very narrow in understanding the gospel, but it's got, the, it's got big points that need to be understood. Um, some of you have heard me say that you can't understand the gospel, which is the good news, unless you understand the bad news. Okay? And Romans 3.23 is the bad news. It's part of the bad news. So, the first part of the Roman road is Romans 3.23. And what this does is set up a presentation of some very basic things that you can share with other people if you're trying to share the gospel with them and actually help them understand it and then lead them to the point of saying, I need to make a decision about this. Am I going to respond to this? So Romans 3.23 is the first part. I'm going to hold the others at, and, and I'm pull them out as we uncover them in the studies. So put that in your notes somewhere. We'll come back to it. I referred to that in the introduction, so I thought I'd better come back to it. And then there's that word propitiation. In uh, verse 25, it refers to Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. What does that word mean? Alright. It's actually not a bad English translation. Um, the only problem with the word appeasement is, for me at least, there is a connotation of the word appeasement that if you're being really, really unreasonable, 
then I might have to do something to appease you, to just settle you down. Okay? Have you heard it used that way? Well, is God doing something unreasonable in judging us? What does that say? That says, all have sinned. <laughs> so, okay, we earned the judgment. So there's nothing unreasonable about it. So technically, appeasement is, is actually a very good word, but we do tend to use it with that connotation. We've got to be careful of that. Propitiation means very simply someone paying somebody else's um, penalty. And it actually, the propitiation is the payment for someone else's penalty. Jesus, Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, that's what they would have heard. The anointed one. God publicly displayed him as the payment of the penalty. We don't like to talk about that today, and it, and it isn't talked about very often in the American church. But it is central to the gospel. So we don't get that. We're, we're going to totally miss the gospel. All right. He goes on and says, This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay? So he's doing this, and it's a demonstration of his righteousness so that people can see that he is two things. He is just, and he is justifier. And who is justifier of? Text. The text. <laughs> Could you explain why you qualify? There you go. The justifier of the one who has faith. Nobody else. Not the one who says Jesus is Lord. Because Jesus himself called that one out. Not the one who does really good things. Because there's a lot of people who do a lot of good things. There's some, some pretty nice pagans running around. A lot nicer than many of us. But they're not necessarily justified. So the justification is based in faith. Now there's some words that, that were used already. Uh, righteousness. Did somebody look that word up? That's the one. I don't want you feeling that when you're reading these because then we're going to be stumbling all over ourselves. Now, what does that word mean? And please don't say righteousness. Okay. So, 
if you have righteousness, you have divine approval. But what is righteousness? Yeah. That, that's a nice little illustration preachers use, and it's probably true, but it doesn't really help us understand specifically what it means. Okay. Um, that's how you that's how you get it from that last verse. That's not what the word means. By the way, I just gave you a hint. The last verse says you get it, get what? If you have faith. I mean, the last verse that I just read. It doesn't say righteousness. Yeah, you get justification. Righteousness is being just. Okay? It's justice. Fairness. Now, we want to be careful a little bit about that. My kids used to say, Dad, that's not fair. Do parents run into that one? Yeah. We'd, early on, I taught them some heavy Pauline theology and said, do you really want fair? Fair is we get what we deserve, right? Fair is not mercy. Fair is not grace. Fair is we get what we deserve. So the divine righteousness of God without propitiation, what do we deserve? Yeah. We deserve condemnation. We deserve to go to hell. Period. So, okay, you want to get what you deserve. Is that what you're telling me? You know? And I can go through, even with a little child, I can go through the things that they've done and what is deserved based on their behavior. Now, do you really want that? No. Okay, well then don't be telling me it's not fair anymore. So, God is not unfair to judge us. God is, in fact, if we're going to say he's unfair at all, he's unfair not to judge us. And there's only one person who has a right to call him that. And the problem is, it is him. It's him who became flesh. Because the flesh, Jesus, is the one who paid the penalty that he didn't have to pay. When I die, I will have deserved it. I've already earned it long ago. Now, the cool thing is that he doesn't make me experience that because Jesus paid the penalty. I'm going to experience part of the judgment. We experience part of that now, right? We live in a fallen world. We deal with pain. We deal with sadness. We deal with bodies that fall apart. But we don't have to experience it eternally. There is another aspect of this that is important to understand. Righteousness, by definition, is a, an attribute of God. So, who decides what is just or righteous? God does. So as soon as a human being begins to judge God, they have just stepped out of this process and put themselves in God's position. And that is an extraordinarily unhealthy thing to do. Not to mention the fact that no one's qualified to do it, even cognitively. So the people who say, well, if there was a loving God, he wouldn't. 
whatever. You ever heard that one? I hear it all the time because I deal with people who are really struggling with their emotions. And the problem is what they're doing is saying, I am capable of passing judgment on God. Now, when we say it that way, it sounds absurd. But then we go and do it anyway. So, for those of us who are in the Word, we need to, we need to grasp this. We're not capable of passing judgment on God. Righteousness is an attribute of God. We are righteous only when God says, I am justifying you. And how does he justify us? He justifies us because of the propitiation. The penalty is paid. Scales of justice are now even. Not because of what we did, but because of what Jesus did. And that's for people who have faith in him to accept that. That's the basis of the gospel. I didn't make it up. He did. Now, you're going to see that word in a number of different forms. If you've already done this, you've seen another form of it um, even on this study guide. And that's why I'm putting it up front, because it's that important a word. Um, forbearance is another interesting word. For time's sake, I'm going to skip to that, and then we're going to move on. Did anybody look up the word forbearance? Okay. What is the word? What does a Spanish word mean? Okay. Because remember, Spanish is, like English, partially based both in Latin and Greek. So a lot of times there are words from Greek words. Okay. Okay, yeah, like benus notes. Yeah. Okay. Then it's not the same. <laughs> Now, what, what, you say it gave, what is it? Okay. You're going to always have to go beyond an interlinear concordance for the simple reason that they don't have room for more than the one word. So they're going to give you a synonym, but this is a beautiful uh, example of the fact that that synonym cannot explain why this is different than other synonyms. For example, long-suffering or patience. He has patience with us pretty much means he has forbearance, right? He is long-suffering with us. And both of those words, the English and the Greek words that are translated into them, are used of God about us. But there is an aspect of anochi that is different than those that's very important to what Paul is saying. So did anybody find another source that gave you more information? etymology of the word, but anarchy meant forbearance, but there was, a, there was a specific aspect to that kind of forbearance that unfortunately we don't get, we, we, we can see it in that, but that's not going to tell you until you hear it. I'm fishing, obviously. Uh, did anybody use vines? Because vines would have told you this. 
Remember, we, I brought in a bunch of resources at the beginning. We're, we've got them over there. And Vines is available in a lot of the online tools for free because it's 130-some years old. Uh, so there's no copyrights on it. But what Vines will tell you is it means to release, pause. See that, that standing upright? If somebody is walking or starting to do something and they stop, they're standing. Now you see the standing upright. And it's that aspect of stopping. But that stopping, in this case, is not necessarily permanent. So has anybody ever heard of a suspended sentence? What's a, a suspended sentence mean? And in our country, at least, if a judge gives you a suspended sentence, are you off the hook? Okay. So not necessarily. What is that tied to? Okay. Or, for example, the judge may say, I'm, going to, I'm giving you, I'm suspending the sentence and placing you on probation. Okay. Or parole. Now, probation and parole can be violated. So as a hook, the judge... And the, and the law of this country, which is based, by the way, on this, says if you do not fulfill that, the judge can have you hauled back into court and reinstate the sentence. So I sentence you to five years in a high-security prison. Okay? So five years, hard time. But because of whatever the judge sees that are mitigating circumstances, he can say, I am suspending the sentence, and almost always, he's going to give conditions. And it's going to be something like probationary stuff or whatever. But if you ignore those conditions, you can still see or find yourself serving that five years. Yeah, depending on what else is in the arrangement. So this word is like that. The distinction between this and patience or forbear or uh, long suffering is this one has the connotation that the judgment is held in abeyance. It is not cancelled. This by the way would have been very, very, very understandable to the average Jew. Because every year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, they would sacrifice a bull for the sins of the people of Israel. And they would take the blood of the bull and they would smear it on the head of a goat. And they would drive the goat away from the city. This is where we get the, the term scapegoat. The sins were put on the head of the goat, symbolically. And they would drive it away. My sins, the guilt, is driven away. But only for a year. If you read the law, the Mosaic law, there was never forgiveness. It was only to roll back the sins another year until the Messiah came, until the final forgiveness was given, which is why today, again, we, we talked about this a little bit before, if you go to Jerusalem and you have the wall, the wailing wall, why are they wailing? There's no way to get forgiven for this year, for next year. It was a year-to-year -year thing. See? And the reason it was a year-to-year -year thing is that God set it up to remind them they needed to come back and be faithful to him. They needed to be with him. They couldn't do this on their own. 
We kind of forget it because we don't have that tradition. We don't have the sacrifice. But the reality is, am I forgiven? Am I totally forgiven right now? And it's a trick question. I told you I would tell you if I'm setting you up. I'm totally forgiven from the curse. No. Oh, now it's no. Well, what else am I forgiven for? You know, is the curse not tied to my sin? Okay. So how many of you believe I'm now immortal and will not, this body will not die? Yeah, and the only way that works is if the Lord calls a halt to everything, which, by the way, I have prayed very hard for. But so far, here we are. So one of these days, this body will stop. I have not fully realized my forgiveness. It doesn't mean I don't think I'm forgiven. I'm not, I'm not laying around worried about it. Because the God who is so loving that he would become flesh and die for me is not playing games with me. He's not teasing me. Like, yeah, it's like you're in, but nah. He's not doing that. So I, I'm totally secure, even though I don't believe necessarily in the concept as it's defined some places of eternal security. My eternal security is based in God, period. In his love. But I haven't experienced it and will not experience it until the day of the resurrection. And when he gives me that new body and all of this, this world of sin, this fallen world is done away with, and he, the new heaven and the new earth that we're told is to come, now it's no longer forbearance. Now it's just done. You see the difference? So Paul is trying to get them to understand. The Jews get it. When he uses this word, you know, they've got that annual thing. They, they all understand. The sacrifice is still happening at the time of the writing of this in Jerusalem every year. But the Gentiles are learning this. And remember, the readership is mixed. So the Gentiles would be looking at this, and they, they probably heard of it. Um, but they're kind of picking up on it the way we are. All right, one last big word from that section, and then we're going to move on, and we've already then built a lot of understanding for the rest of what he says. He is the justifier, once again, of whom? Okay. Who have faith in Jesus. Now, I didn't write this one down. What is faith? The Greek word is pistis. You'll see it often, pisteos. And those of you who study Greek know that the ending is simply indicative of what part of speech it's playing in a sentence. So it's the root word in Greek that is important. Transliteration for pistis. I'm sorry. There you go. Okay? Peace, peace. Now, this is important because Paul's going to say over and over and over in this letter, this is how we are saved. Right? Not by the law, not by keeping the law, but by peace, peace. So, what is it? All right, now, believing, by the way, is another translation of the word pistis. So, 
is absolutely accurate, but in terms of translation, doesn't help because it's just another synonym. When we hear the word belief, what do we talk about? What are we usually saying? Okay, so someone says to you, hey, I believe in God. What do you hear them say? They believe there is a God. Okay. Usually it's intellectual assent. This is why um, you see a lot of surveys that declare that 67 to 75% of the people in this country are Christian. Yeah, I mean, look around, folks. That's just absurd. But, yes, if, if... you say, do you believe in Jesus? And don't even qualify what that means. And that's your definition of Christian. Now, there is a problem with it. There's a biblical problem with it. And just to not play games, because we've talked about this before. James. What did James say about this problem? You say you believe? Good. So do the demons. So... When the person says, I believe, which means I accept that there is a God, there, there was Jesus. And by the way, that's an interesting term because it's how most people say it. And, and, you know, they're either not thinking it through or they don't really believe. It's not there was Jesus. There is Jesus. If, if Christianity is true at all, Jesus is present tense. Ongoing, still here. So that's good. But it's not good enough. Because Satan can say that too. When I first believed, it was May, it was at a, uh, a Southern Baptist, it was an old-fashioned Southern Baptist revival that turned into a Jesus movement happening. It was really funny to watch the preacher and the guys, because they just totally lost control. <laughs> it's just like, it's gone. And I went forward, and I actually believed. Before that, I didn't. There is no God. I don't want to hear about this. Nonsense. Now I believed. But I wasn't a Christian. And I spent the next three months going down and down and down and down. Because I believed. But what did I not do? Trust. So when Paul in Ephesians 2 says we're not saved by our works, it's a gift from God. And when John says we have to receive him, we're talking about trust. Okay. And so I trust in what he did as opposed to what I do. I'm not capable of earning it. Okay, now I get that. So that's another dynamic. It's what I call a dimension of It's not a different meaning of it. That's why James was confronting that. It's always included that. But we always try to narrow it down and only make it part of it. And by we, I mean humans all the way back 2,000 years ago. So I've got to not only accept intellectually the reality of God, of Jesus, but I've got to trust him. And that's hard. Trust is very easy, by the way, until you need to. And then all of a sudden, it's, it's rough. We were talking a little bit before. When you've got a daughter in a third world country half, half a globe away, now you start understanding trust, right? Hmm? 
Prabhu. Yeah, I trust. Yeah, right. Because they don't, honestly. I mean, that's exactly it. If you don't trust, you can't understand that. No, they won't. Exactly. Now, you can show it, and hopefully they can catch it. But, yeah, it's, it, is, it almost defies intellectual capitalization. Does that make sense? All right. So there's intellectual agreement, assent to the reality, the truth, and then there's trust. Is that all? And then there's that word faithfulness. Guess what word that is? It's that word. So, for example, the fruit of the Spirit, faithfulness. Okay? It is not a different word. It's exactly the same thing. So, not only do we approach God with it, but God then grows it in us more. Which harkens back to Mark, where the guy says to Jesus, I believe, help me in my unbelief. One of my favorite passages. Because it's so raw, so real to who we are. We all have limits to our faith. All three dimensions. So faithfulness is I, I accept the reality and I trust God and because of that there's a certain way I am driven to live. I don't live that way to make God love me. I've already accepted the reality He does love me and I trust Him. I live that way because he's loved me. Does that make sense? 44 years ago, he forgave me. I know I didn't deserve it. I know what I did deserve. So, in my immaturity, I didn't know what faithful looked like. I didn't know what God wanted from me. Because the Jesus movement was not known for its teaching. But, I wanted so badly, and so many others, to live in a way that God wanted me to live. So then, I spend the rest of my life figuring out what that is as the Holy Spirit grows that in me. But the faith isn't, okay, finally, after 50 years, you're good enough. It's never about good enough, because I don't care how many years, make it 100, it's not good enough. But the faith is there anyway. The faith is there at the very beginning with that, that kid who says, he loved me so much, he died for me, he forgave me. I've got to live for him now. I want to, I want to do whatever he wants. And I don't want to do what he doesn't want. And so I've got to change. I've got to turn around. Change my mind and turn around. Repentance. It's not what I do to earn justification. It's just part of the process. It is the natural result. This is why Jesus says, and John says, and Paul says, all the way through, it is those who practice the will of the Father who inherit the kingdom. Why do I practice the will of the Father? It's not that I inherit the kingdom because of that. It's because my faith means I inherit the kingdom. John said that in so many words. And because of that, I'm driven to practice the will of the Father. Does that make sense? It is very, very different than both the world's view of Christianity and most of the people in the American church's view. Because they typically zero in on that first belief 
And the rest of that, yeah, you've got to practice that. But as long as you do that, I grew up in a uh, family that, uh, in terms of faith, I guess diverse would be a good way of saying it. Um, we had a little of everything from snake handlers to Roman Catholic. And that boy, was that an interesting combination. And all of them were very heavily influenced by the concept of once saved, always saved. Now, we can debate that. I actually agree with it, and yet I don't believe it the way most people mean it. So, yeah, chase your tail on that one. But the way it played out back in Appalachia was you come to a tent meeting, and you get real emotional when the preacher's, you know, really moving. And when he finally issues that invitation, you raise your hand. And that indicates that you believe, because you're saying, I believe. Because that's what he said, is if you believe, raise your hand. And they did. So now they believe. They have faith. So they're justified. And it doesn't matter what else happens in their life for the rest of their life, at least we know they're saved. There's nothing in the Bible that even closely resembles that. But that is a very dominant theology today in America. So we've got to be careful with that. And we've got to remember that when we try to share the gospel with other people, it's entirely possible that what they're hearing as we're sharing is that stuff. They've got this filter, and, and, and it's hard to break through that filter. So whatever we say just gets filtered, and they hear that. Okay. I'm going to take a breath. Questions, comments, thoughts? Talked about the law, and question five says, does this apply to other laws as well? Okay. What, what he's saying here. We cannot be saved by the law. It's not by the law. And we're going to hear more in, in Chapter 4 about this. What other law might I be talking about? Did we not hear in previous chapters that those who don't have the law have within them a sense of the law just from nature around them? It's what, it's what is usually referred to as a natural revelation. That there's things that we can glean from God. It's not going to be as specific as revealed truth, written revelation, but we can all get them. And this is one of the reasons that most legal codes, and moral codes, all the way back as far as they're, they're written, literally, all have an extremely common core of things. Most of what they're saying is pretty much the same thing. Why would that be? Well, number one, they all descend from the same, which is Noah. And number two, even if they don't have Moses' law, they have God's creation to teach them. And it does. Okay. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. Now, who might be boasting, by the way? How, how, where do you go to boasting all of a sudden? That's the next sentence. Okay. I didn't make it up. All right. Well, anybody can be boasting, but I'm assuming that he's talking about the Pharisees and 
the people back then that would brag hey. about their beliefs. Yeah. And, and by the way, I, I sort of set you up, but it's only sort of, so I didn't have to tell you, because I didn't read the next phrases. So it is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works. No, but a law of faith. So who would boast of works? What is works, by the way? What's, what's the, yeah, the, the word literally is the word we get our word energy from. And it means doing things. So the Pharisees would brag about how well they keep the law. So where is the boasting? See, when Paul writes this, he's not taking weekly breaks. This is all flowing together, and they're getting it. They, they've been living with it, okay? The boasting, the, the bragging is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. A law of faith. The law of works allows for bragging because I can say I do it better than you or you can say you do it better than me. But faith trusts God and requires that I understand the basic fact that I can't do it. So much for me bragging about anything. I've said many times, and I, and I mean it, and it's, it's something I say very intentionally, because I believe this has to become part of the DNA of our body. I am not better than anybody. Can you think, about, can you think of people you think are better than? I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but just think about it. Because I know people that I used to think I was better than. I've sat at a table. There's four of us. The other three had all killed somebody, murdered. Not just killed, murdered somebody that week. And as I'm sitting there, I'll be honest with you, there was a part of me that was really glad I wasn't like them. And it took a while for the Holy Spirit to kind of pound through my skull that I was a lot more like them than what I'd like to admit. I hadn't killed anybody, but I had done other things. So, no, there's no bragging, there's no boasting in faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from work from works of the law. Uh, justified, by the way, is what word? Hmm? Hint, I told you earlier. Yeah. So it, it would be a little more awkward, but not justified, but made righteous. And that, that is awkward, so we're not going to use that. It's going to say justified. It's the same word. So that's why that word is so big, and if you look up justified, you found that's exactly what it says. By the way, maintain, it's, uh, I've got study guides that actually have that correction, because there was a typo, it's verse 28, not verse 25. Um, did anybody look up the word maintain? He says, we maintain that a man, okay, what does that mean? So there's this very cerebral thing going on. Maintain means that we just hold on and keep, keep where we are. So it's a little bit of a strange translation. It's an Americanism, but the word itself is we've thought this through, we've calculated it, we've reasoned it, and concluded that. That's pretty important. This is not just I feel. This is thinking through the law and God's revolution and, uh, revelation and coming to this conclusion. Verse 29, or is God the God of Jews only? 
Is he not the God of Gentiles also? So now, see, he's been doing all this with the Jews who are struggling with the law and what place the law has, and our heritage has always been about the law, and now you're telling us it's faith. Well, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Same God. And by the way, he used that word justified again. Did you see it? So you're going to see it so often, it's going, to, it's going to become like white noise, because he uses it so often. But that's not incidental. Do we then nullify the law, of, through, the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Uh, we root the law. We make the law, law, the law stronger by faith. And the reason for that is, as he's going to continue to develop, the law and faith were never intended to be in contradiction to one another. This is why Jesus can come and say, you have to have faith. And yet at the same time say, I didn't come to do away with the law. Not even the smallest mark of it will pass away. I came to fulfill the law. And when you hear him saying it's established, you hear an echo of Jesus saying, no, I'm, I'm fulfilling it. Okay, verse four, or chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our far, forefather according to the flesh, has found? One of the questions was, um, uh, why, why Abraham keeps being brought up. But to the Jew, Abraham was pretty much everything. So he's now coming back to, Jew, to the Jews and saying, this, this is what Abraham, our father, was about. You remember the parable we talked about last week. And Abraham is the one who, it, it's almost in God's uh, stead. Lazarus is in Abraham's arms in heaven. And when Abraham re replies to the rich man, do you remember what he called him? Child? Yeah. Because he, he's the father of all these people. The ancestor of all these people. So Paul's really pulling out big guns in terms of the emotion that be attached to this. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, that's not how it worked with God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. If you remember, Abraham was told by God he was going to be the father of a great nation. And Abraham was how old? Well, he was pushing 100 by the time it actually happened. And it, it took him a while, by the way. This was not his first response. If you read Abraham's story, you'll find he's a very fascinating picture of faith. Because he failed in faith over and over and over and over. But eventually, his faith grew. And he was able to trust God, even with the life of that son born to him, fathered by him when he was pushing 100. So, this again, quoting this phrase to the Jews in the, in the church in Rome was extraordinarily powerful. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Anybody happen to look up where that came from? It's one of the most famous of David's psalms, Psalm 32. Psalm 32 and 51 were written autobiographically. Blessed is the man whose lawless deeds have been, what was it, covered or forgiven on that one? Lawless deeds are forgiven. These, by the way, very fascinating word studies in the Hebrew of different words that mean forgiven. So you give different word pictures of forgiveness. This was written by David following his escapade with Bathsheba. No. Yeah, Bathsheba. When she was married to Uriah. And he commits adultery with her. She gets pregnant. And eventually has Uriah, who was a very loyal captain in his army, murdered to cover it up. This is David talking about himself. There's, there's no bragging about keeping the law there. And all of Israel knew it. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Remember, circumcision was the, the sign of the covenant, right? So the Jews considered somebody who was circumcised to be in and therefore righteous, and somebody who wasn't, well, you're a pagan and you're, you're not worth anything. He says, no, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And then he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also fall in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So, if I can remove some words, you know. You put so much emphasis on being circumcised, which was the sign given in the law of the covenant. Okay? So we're back to the law. And circumcision became symbolic of the law. If you were circumcised, that meant you kept the law. Because nobody else did it. Today, uh, in America, at least when I was having kids, circumcision happened more often than not, regardless of faith. It just became sort of a tradition. Never in that society did that happen. Now, was Abraham declared righteous by faith when he was circumcised? No. It was before that. And after he had faith and was declared righteous, God gave him the sign of circumcision. So, the circumcision followed the faith. You see? It was a seal of the righteousness following the faith that he had. And Paul says there's a reason for that. And that was so that he could become the father of all of those who would have faith without circumcision. Which means who? Gentiles. Yeah. Because he's not talking about whether you actually go, today a lot of Gentiles in the U.S. have circumcision. No. Because circumcision wasn't just the operation. It was a statement of uh, parents saying, I will raise him in the law, and then at bar mitzvah, of him accepting that responsibility himself. 
It was about the law. Paul says, no. Abraham was the father of those Gentiles. Through faith. In other words, to be a child of Abraham is to be faith. To have faith. As well as through those who had the sign of circumcision. It's both. So again, put his arms around the Jews and put his arms around the Gentiles. Put his arms around the Jews again. And he keeps pulling them both in to let them see that the church is not made up of one or the other. And, and there was a big reason for that because it was coming to a head and Jews were having to decide within 10 years it was, a, it was forced on them. Are you going to be Christian or will you remain in the synagogue? And if you're put out of the synagogue, that literally puts your life in jeopardy. Certainly put all of your social contacts, your family, everybody's against you unless they also were put out of the synagogue. So this is already starting to happen. It was important for them to understand now, God had in mind from the very beginning of the covenant, Jews and Gentiles, together. For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. There was no law yet. It was his great-grandson. No. It was his, well, I don't know, 400 years worth of, Generations, you figure out how many greats go into that. That got the law. So for Abraham, who was honored as the father of all Israel, you're right, he's the father of all Israel, didn't have the law. So you can't be making that big a deal out of the law. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void. They're not saying you can't be an heir if you're a Jew, but it can't be about the law. That's what he's saying. You're not an heir. Because of the law. And by the way, you're not an heir because you're a Jew. Today, we still make that mistake. And there's so many people, Christian and non-Christian, who still think that Jews are the chosen people. That covenant was violated and closed by God, according to Scripture. It is those who are Abraham's seed by faith that are the chosen people. Some of them have DNA from Israel. And some of them don't. The DNA never was important. So the law brings about wrath. Well, no, I'm starting at verse 14. For those who are of the law are heirs. Faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Because it's no longer about faith. It's about the law. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. How, How does the law bring about wrath? There could be faith. Jesus had faith and the law. And no wrath of God anyway. So why is the wrath of God on us? Or for that matter on those who practice the law? Because they didn't fulfill the law. The law basically was there so you would know you broke it. You can't do all of that because you're not good enough. It's not about, by the way, how many of all the different uh, commands there were. It's not because there were 600-some commands. If you just narrow the law down to the Ten Commandments, show me someone hadn't broken one of those. I literally, I don't know anybody who hasn't broken one of those who's 
two years old or more. So, no, it, it, it's just we're not capable of it. Now, for this reason, because of that, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, which is the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So the promise then becomes to all of his descendants, which includes all who believe in Jesus. As it is written, the father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him who he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which has been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Well, just him. His wife was pretty much the same age. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. Now, there's, there's an interesting thing, because you see unbelief and in faith. But the Greek words are apistis and pistis. He didn't waver in not faith, but grew strong in faith. They're, they're exactly opposites. Okay. But grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And then verse 21. And being fully assured that what God has promised, he was able also to perform. That's, that's another aspect, isn't it? That's the trust part. Here's God. He's promised these things. Now I've got to rely on him to do it. And that can get scary. lost my place trying to... Well, I know that. I'm trying to find where it is. <laughs> there it is. I'm sorry. On, on PC Study Bible, the, the text is in small print, the way I've got it set up. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, and was raised because of our justification, or in order for our justification. It wasn't that we're justified, therefore Jesus can be raised. Our justification followed the resurrection. It did not precede it. So translation's a little awkward there. Okay, that's the end of this passage. There was a question on why is Paul going through all of this discussion in this letter. We, we have this faith versus law, faith versus law, over and over and over and over. Righteousness comes by faith, not by law. Righteousness comes by faith, not by law. And we're going to see it. It hasn't stopped. We're going to see it still over and over and over. Why? What, what's the point? Why is Paul making such a big deal out of that in this letter? So why was he doing that? Okay. So 
number one, if the Gentiles didn't have the law and they were saved by the law, then the Gentiles are cooked. So he's basically saying to them, no, that's not true. The Gentiles are heirs to the promise too. It's not about the law. It's about faith because that's what the covenant was based on to begin with. Which covenant? Yeah, the one with Abraham. Okay. But there was a secondary reason. Where's the boasting? He's talking to people who had been taught from the, from the day they were born. This is how you please God. Be good enough. I can't tell you how many Christians I have worked with. People on their deathbeds. People who, who know they're dying or people who are going into a surgery and scared snotless they're going to die on the table and frankly with a good chance of it. Begging me to pray for them that God would accept them as good enough. And I'm just shattered. Like, how can they believe that? And worse, how can they live scared snotless their whole life that God is going to just finally get tired of them and lower the boom? Or that God's just going to let them go through this life, but when this life is over, boy, are you in trouble. That's what they're saying. Because they're so scared as they approach death. And they weren't scared of the dying part, by the way. They were scared of death, of judgment. Paul's saying, no. God's plan from the beginning. It's God's plan. It's not ours. He's the one who had the idea to forgive us. He's the one who became flesh to forgive us. We don't need to be living in slavery to that fear or that, that driving belief that somehow we've got to be better and better and better and better so that we can be good enough for God. And if you do live in that, in the first place, you're missing what actually will save you. And in the second place, you're going to live a horrible life because you're going to have that hanging over you all your life. And when you do approach death, when you do think you're about to face God in judgment, you're not going to have any peace. And I can tell you, that one, that would be horrible. That would be literally horrible. And Paul is trying to get them to understand that's not the gospel. That's not good news. That's not what God had in mind ever. God always had in mind to give us a way to be forgiven that's not based on us. Okay. 832? Oh, I'm not way off tonight. Um, last week I did circulate the next study guides, which are uh, basically just chapter 5. Does anybody need a hard copy? Okay. Now, are you guys getting these? Okay, is there anybody not getting these uh, electronically that wants to? Because all you need to do is give me an email and I'll stick it in there. All right. Thank you, guys. Have a good week. Pardon? I emailed it with the last week. Yeah. Did you not get that? Okay. Look, tell me tomorrow night, and I can email it to you again if you wish. Okay, I'll check it out. Okay. Yeah.
Thank you. Yes, it did. The study guide? Uh, yes. Okay. One or two? Uh, just one. Okay. Sure thing. Thank you. 